This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin's air quality continues to improve according to an annual air quality report from the state's Department of Natural Resources. This report notes concentrations of certain air pollutants are decreasing across the state and most of Wisconsin meets federal air quality guidelines. The state's air quality has been gradually improving over the past 20 years, which the DNR attributes to a variety of pollution control plans enacted since the turn of the century. A Republican candidate for state attorney general has dropped out of that race after he received pushback for deleting episodes of his podcast that criticized Donald Trump. Ryan Owens, a UW-Madison law school professor, previously served as the director of the Tommy G. Thompson Center on Public Leadership, As part of that role, he hosted one of the center's podcasts. According to the Associated Press, Owens initially denied deleting the four episodes before later acknowledging that he had taken them down. With Owens' departure, Fond du Lac County District Attorney Eric Toney is the sole Republican running in next year's election against the incumbent, Democratic Attorney General Josh Call. A Kenosha County Circuit judge judge has denied an appeal to dismiss a weapons possession possession charge against Kyle Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse shot and killed two men and injured a third last August during protests against police brutality. In a pretrial hearing today, a police use of force expert also attempted to justify Rittenhouse's actions by saying that the Illinois teenager was acting in self-defense. Rittenhouse's attorneys are pushing to allow for the expert, John Black, to testify in the main trial next month. According to the Associated Press, Judge Bruce Schroeder punted the decision on whether Black would be allowed to testify. Rittenhouse's trial is set to begin on November 1st. Middleton High School is pushing ahead with its homecoming plans. That comes as the Middleton community mourns the loss of three teenagers killed in a car crash on Saturday. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, two of those killed in the crash were students at Middleton High and one was a senior at Madison West. District officials say they're pushing forward with Spirit Night activities, the homecoming football game, and a homecoming dance so students and community members can come together to support each other. The Wisconsin Historical Society is pushing ahead with a new museum. This facility will open in 2026 when it replaces the current museum at the intersection of North Carroll and State Streets on Capitol Square. Historical Society leadership expects to welcome over 200,000 guests annually to the new $100 million museum. At 100,000 square feet, the facility will have more than double the exhibition space of the current building. Wisconsin's rolling seven-day average of new COVID-19 cases currently stands at 2,663 confirmed cases. 54% of all Wisconsinites, or more than 3.1 million people, have completed their vaccination series. That data comes courtesy of the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. And now on to today's top stories. Earlier today, Madison Mayor Sacha Rhodes-Conway released her proposed 2022 operating budget. Alongside the city's capital budget and capital improvement plan, the operating budget will guide the city's spending through the next year. For the details, we turn to WORT producer Jonah Chester. Today at a fire station on Madison's south side, Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway unveiled her 2022 operating budget. That's the budget that guides day-to-day spending, employees' salaries, and spending on some materials and supplies. 
Alongside the capital budget and the capital improvement plan, it drives the city's fiscal planning for the next year. This piece of that planning comes in at $358.6 million. City leaders are going into this year's budget negotiations facing an $18 million deficit. Despite that hurdle, Rhodes-Conway says that this year's operating budget will result in a 1.1% property tax hike, or about $34 for the average homeowner, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Rhodes-Conway says that's the smallest property tax hike in two decades. As part of her budget proposal, the mayor wants to increase staffing in some city departments in anticipation of a sudden population spike on Halloween 2022. On that day, parts of the town of Madison will be attached to the city of Madison. The mayor says she wants to allocate about $1.4 million to fund public services for the additional residents gained during that process. Staff have been anticipating and preparing for this attachment for years. Our key goal is to ensure that we can provide high quality and equitable service to the approximately 5,000 people who will become city residents. These new residents are more diverse than our current population. Over 27% of the town's population is Latinx, compared to just under 7% in the city. And the town's black population is over 13%, compared to 7.3% in the city. The operating budget includes funds for eight new Madison police officers, 10 more firefighters, and more staffing to manage streets, voting, parks, and social services. Funding for the Madison Police Department makes up almost a quarter of this budget, or more than $84 million. And under this proposal, cops would get $1.2 million more than in 2021. Some of that money will fund the new police officers, and some will go towards a new police reform and innovation director. This position will use data-driven methods to create new strategies for exemplary policing, police reform, reducing disparities, and violence prevention. The mayor is also proposing more than $1 million to kick off a five-year violence prevention plan that was introduced by Public Health Madison and Dane County earlier this year. And finally, Rhodes-Conway is asking for additional funding for affordable housing projects, including nearly $6.6 million to expand low-cost housing options and $2 million for homelessness service operations. That includes funding a renter's choice program that will reduce barriers for renting for tenants that might otherwise be screened out of the process due to damage reports or low credit scores. The operating budget proposal is the second budget to come out of the mayor's office this year. Rhodes-Conway introduced the capital budget in August. That budget covers major construction, transportation, park maintenance, and equipment purchases. City leaders will spend the next several weeks hashing out both spending plans. Both the capital and operating budgets are slated to be finalized by the second week of November. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. Two City of Madison recycling trucks caught fire this year. The likely cause? Improperly disposed batteries. WRT reporter Nate Carlin has the story. A second Madison recycling truck caught fire last month. The cause, as in a similar case earlier this year, was most likely due to a lithium battery. Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway announced the problem at a weekly press conference. I'm sorry to say that we have had another fire in a recycling truck. This is the second time this year, and um, I just really have to emphasize this happens because people put things in their recycling that do not belong in their recycling. Brian Johnson is the Madison Recycling Coordinator for the city. According to him, battery fires have been a growing problem across the country. 
lithium polymer batteries in particular are known to spark. And if you have something like that that gets compacted the right way or damaged the right way and it goes off in a truck full of paper, it's going to catch on fire. Rechargeable lithium batteries, like those in cell phones or other small electronics, are especially hazardous. They hold some residual charge even after use and can spark when struck. The back of garbage and recycling trucks have a combination of movement and flammable material like paper, and so they're a common site for battery fires. Batteries, no matter what the type, cannot be put into trucks. Instead, batteries must be taken to a drop-off site, like the ones operated by the Madison Streets Division. Alternatively, some hardware stores accept rechargeable batteries for recycling, and there are battery drop-off sites across the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus. Before taking lithium or nickel batteries for disposal, be sure to tape the contact points with clear tape. This ensures that the batteries cannot start fires when they are disposed of. Also tape all batteries 12 volts or more. Only you can prevent recycling truck fires. Full instructions for recycling batteries are found in the Recyclopedia available online at cityofmadison.com at the Streets Division website. Please, 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 please go to the Recyclopedia and find out what actually belongs in your recycling cart and only put those things in it. Reporting for WORT News, this is Nate Carlin. It's now 6.16 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Yesterday, in an unprecedented move, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources rejected guidance from the state's Natural Resources Board. That board is the policy-setting authority for the DNR. In its decision, the DNR announced that it would be capping next month's wolf hunt quota at 130, less than half of the 300 figure the Natural Resources Board approved in August. That August decision by the board went against previous recommendations by DNR wildlife biologists. Beyond the fall wolf hunt, the DNR's decision, if it holds, could permanently alter how the two groups interact. For more, WORT producer Jonah Chester spoke with Paul Smith, the outdoors editor at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. How is the DNR justifying this? How are they justifying and going against a policy decision by the Natural Resources Board, which is the policy-setting board that governs the DNR. Yes, this is a a strong and unprecedented challenge to the authority of the Natural Resources Board. DNR, in its announcement uh, on Monday, when they announced they were going to set lower wolf quota than the board had approved in August, said in its statement that it had the authority to uh, 
to do this, uh, and it cited uh, state statute and the department's own rules to make a final decision on the quota. So I did request of the department specifics on that, and they responded with a section of Wisconsin state statute uh, on the wolf hunting law in the state, as well as Wisconsin administrative code. Both of those say that the department uh, may limit the number of uh, hunters and trappers and also determine the number of licenses. So the language is there, but as a practical matter, the, the board does supervise or oversee the natural resources uh, department. So in the past, the NRB, the Natural Resources Board, the seven-member citizen board has always had the last say on issues of quota, including including wolves. But the department is challenging that. Uh, and this will be a very interesting story to watch how it plays out. Yeah, you mentioned it there just a minute ago, and the word unprecedented also gets gets thrown around a few times in your coverage of this issue. But can you just underline for folks who might not be familiar with the NRB-DNR relationship, how odd is this move? How beyond the pale is this? Yeah, this is this is something that people who followed the board and the department for their careers uh, have never even contemplated. <laughs> it's way out there. Things have gotten testy between the department and the board, especially this year when the chairman of the board, Fred Prane, his term expired May 1st, and he decided to hold over on the board. That's a term when someone stays on past their expiration date. And uh, he cited, there's, there's been two instances where this happened before, and uh, he's like the previous occasion citing a 1964 Supreme State Supreme Court decision to, that allows him to do that. So this is denying an appointee of Governor Evers her position on the board, and uh, that hasn't inflamed conflicts just the way the board has been operating. And there's a partisan, you know, theme to this. The chairman of the board, Fred Prane, was appointed by Republican Governor Scott Walker. Governor Evers is obviously a Democrat. Governor Evers is now the duly elected governor, and he uh, appointed two people to the Natural Resources Board, but this move by Fred Prane is denying Governor Evers a majority of appointees on the board now. So it's really changed the dynamics of the functioning of the board. And the board also has become more activist than anyone that I can remember. And I've been covering the board since 1994 uh, for Wisconsin newspapers. This board has chosen to overrule the department twice this year on notable issues. The, one, the first one was on deer uh, antlerless deer permits in the early summer. Then this wolf issue came up in August, and the department had recommended a quota of 130. The board decided on uh, and voted to approve a 300 quota. So this uh, relationship is now becoming very contentious and will likely turn up to be uh, decided in litigation. It, it wouldn't surprise anybody to see this turn up in court. Now, this uh, this challenge from the DNR to the NRB's authority also comes at, at a bit of a, 
of a high-pressure moment for both agencies. The Wolf Hunt is set to start in almost exactly a month, November 6th, if I have my dates right. But at the same time, the issue of the Wolf Hunt is being litigated in the courts. So do we have any idea how this, this challenge by the DNR to the NRB's authority, how will that impact those ongoing court cases, or does that remain to be seen? I would see it as a separate issue, but it will definitely re- remain to be seen. There are two lawsuits that are attempting to stop the fall wolf hunt, which is scheduled to begin November 6th. One is in Dane County Court, and that was filed by uh, wildlife advocates. It also challenges the state statute. There's a state law that requires the department to hold a wolf hunt when the wolf is not on the endangered or threatened species list. So in addition to trying to stop this falls hunt, it's challenging that bigger issue of, of the state statute of, on wolf hunting. The other one was filed by Ojibwa tribes, and it is in federal court, and it has a hearing on a preliminary injunction uh, scheduled for October 29th. So if the wolf hunt is going to be stopped at this point, it looks like that would that, that's something to keep your eye on. Uh, the judge could rule on a preliminary injunction and it would stop the hunt. This matter between the Natural Resources Board and the DNR is more of an in-house fight. You know, the department wants to see the hunt held. It's just uh, it and the Natural Resources Board have a difference of opinion about the quota for the hunt. So uh, I believe that it's going to play out on a separate playing field. But it's part of this over, you know, the wolf management has always been controversial and we're seeing this uh, whole new area blow up regarding uh, natural resources management. Your listeners should also know that this issue between the, this is a very interesting and important challenge to the authority of the natural resources board. The department is trying to make its own decision on a matter of quota. But if it succeeds, it may redefine this relationship between the board and the department. It'll be very interesting to see how that affects the future issues on, on other matters. The, this Natural Resources Board and the DNR, you know, they oversee issues on water quality, air pollution, uh, land management, in addition to wildlife and fish issues. So um, it's uh, very important to our day-to-day life in Wisconsin. And this contentious nature of the relationship between these two bodies is a whole new thing. So what happens now? You know, as I mentioned, the wolf hunt is just one short month away. Where do you anticipate this debate between the NRB and the DNR heading next? I believe you said there's a potential it, it could wind up in the courts. Is that the most likely course for what we'll see happen next? To be honest with you, this is so new that I hesitate to to even guess about how it'll go. The Natural Resources Board and the department both have legal counsel that uh, state employees who advise them on legal matters. And in the day-to-day matters, there is the same attorney who works for the DNR who advises both. Now, the DNR has more than one attorney, but I think some of the first conversations are going to be held in-house with state attorneys who represent both of these entities. And 
even the attorney general's office, I think, would probably be included in some of the conversations. So um, I think they're probably going to start there. The board could choose to hire some outside counsel. I, I would not be surprised if, if, in fact, this doesn't get tested in some court at, at some time. Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. Before I let you go, is there anything else that you've uncovered in your reporting that you think folks should be aware of that we, we haven't had a chance to touch on here today that you'll want to float to the surface? Your listeners should also uh, remember that the wolf management issue is being contested on a federal level. There's a lawsuit that uh, against the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that it, uh, is attempting to place the wolf back under protections of the Endangered Species Act that changed uh, for our area of the nation in early January. If that lawsuit is successful, then there could be no wolf hunt in Wisconsin. And these matters that are now being contested between the Natural Resources Board and DNR would become mute. Uh, It's not likely a decision on that federal uh, national case will be reached anytime soon. But people should keep that in mind because these wolf management issues are national in scope. Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate you walking us through this issue. Yeah, thank you, Jonah. Paul Smith is the outdoors editor at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. You can find his full write-up of this issue online at the Journal Sentinel's website. And we'll also have a link to that coverage in the web version of this interview at wortfm.org. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call shares the latest news from the UW-Madison campus. Wildlife Weekly teaches a thoughtful way to recycle old jack-o'-lanterns. And Radio Astronomy goes back in time a century to ponder the size of the universe. And now we'll take a quick break and check in on some world headlines back in a flash. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Christian Knutson here with Sarah Hopeful. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the team over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to get the latest news from campus. This week on Cardinal Call, contributor Hope Carnop takes a look at local redistricting and how the city's new aldermanic maps could impact UW students. Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by campus news writer Charlie Hildebrand to explain city redistricting plans that were originally expected to affect the representation of students in residence halls. So thanks so much for coming on the show. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here today. So let's start with some of the basics. Um, District 8, what does it currently look like and who's representing that area? So District 8 is currently represented by Alder Juliana Bennett, and it encompasses all of the UW campuses, or all of the UW campus communities. So that includes Lakeshore dorms and a lot of off-campus housing in the Spring Street and College Court area. Um, And can you explain why this redistricting process is happening this year? Yes, so following the census every 10 years, the city does uh, redraw the entire city maps um, after every census. So this is something that happens um, every 10 years. So the city of Madison was considering two plans to redraw the districts that would have changed District 8. What did those original plans look like? So the original plans to redraw District 8 um, basically cut off a few of the Lakeshore dorms, and it also cut off uh, a lot of off-campus student housing in the College Court Spring Street area and other um, areas by Camp Randall. So some community leaders were raising concerns about what that change would mean for how students' concerns are getting heard on the Common Council. So what were some of the things that you were hearing from them? Yeah, so a lot of concerns uh, arose from uh, people worrying about students' voices being weakened if the campus is split up, because if the Lakeshore dorms are put in um, district with a lot of um, more wealthier single and family uh, residences in that neighborhood, their needs wouldn't be as heard as much because uh, those families care more about like safety and like education issues, while students are more interested in issues relating to nightlife drinking and campus safety. So those issues would be diluted. Yeah, so it looks like um, the District 8 Alder, Juliana Bennett, was really involved in getting these new proposals that we're going to talk about in a minute developed. So what were some of the things that she was concerned about? She was concerned about some of the points that I previously made about students' voices not being heard. And she addressed a lot of misconceptions, one of them being that People believe that students at UW-Madison don't vote at all, so they shouldn't be in one district. But she brought up a good point saying that even if students tend to not vote that much, that shouldn't be an excuse for redrawing the district and cutting them off. Mm -hmm. So since then, the city proposed two new plans. Um, What are the changes in those new maps and what would the changes to District 8 look like under those? Yeah, so the... Two recently new uh, proposed maps look very similar to what the district looks like today. They actually do include all of the Lakeshore dorms and the housing off of Spring Street and College Court area. What's the next step for these redistricting plans to go through? The city is meeting this Thursday, October 7th, to vote on a final map so that by December 1st, the map will be finalized for spring 2022 elections. I guess just in general, do you think that students are paying attention to this redistricting plan or do you think that maybe they're not paying attention to all of this that's going on? Yeah, in all honesty, I do not believe that many students are completely aware of this redistricting process. I think there's some confusion with how often the lines are redrawn following every census. But also, there are a lot of students on campus who aren't as politically engaged, so typically they wouldn't be too invested in um, staying up to date on these type of things. Is there anything else that you think listeners should know about redistricting and this story in general? I think one thing that makes a story unique is that um, when we talk about District 8 that encompasses all of campus, 
the alder for District 8 is actually a student here, Juliana. She's um, a full-time student here, and she's also taking her time to represent um, all of campus and uh, all of the students' needs. And she's been really listening to our concerns and taking that into account. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking with us. Thank you for having me. In other campus news, the university broke ground on a new recreation center last week. It's being built where the former natatorium used to stand, on the west side of campus. The $113 million project will be named after the Bach family, which donated $20 million to the new recreation building. The center is expected to have a pool, an indoor climbing wall, and space for well-being services. Ho-Chunk Nation President Marlon White Eagle spoke at the event and said the values of physical, spiritual, and emotional wellness is shared with the new center. A structure is being constructed with Ho-Chunk artist Ken Lewis that represents the tradition of health and recreation shared with the Ho-Chunk people. It will be placed near the building. The campus is currently operating with one recreation center, the NIC, which houses the university's swim and dive teams. The opening of that center was delayed, and at that time the surf had been torn down, leading most students to rely on the former natatorium for fitness. UW-Madison welcomed a record number of freshmen this year, nearly 8,500. In-state enrollment increased, with 55% of the incoming class from Wisconsin or Minnesota, which has a tuition reciprocity agreement with UW. About a quarter of the class of 2025 are students of color, which is more than ever before. Just under one in 10 freshmen this year are international students, including many students from China and India. Some freshmen have pointed out that the record number of students has been apparent to them. The university has implemented some triple and quad rooms in residence halls to accommodate more students. The Associated Students of Madison, the student government body, passed legislation to try to regain shared governance power. ASM plans to contact legislators about bringing back language from the state statute to say that students have the primary responsibility for the formation of policies. That language was changed six years ago under former Governor Scott Walker. That act changed the statute to having responsibility for advising the chancellor. For student representatives on ASM, the issue is about making sure that student voices are heard in forming campus policies. ASM met for the first time in person since the pandemic began. Other issues that their committees are focusing on are fossil fuel divestment, mental health services, and sexual abuse prevention. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com or download our app. You can also find links to our podcast, The Student Dive, on our website. Some of the stories you heard about today are featured in our student involvement print issue, available online and at locations around campus. This has been the Cardinal Call, 
created by student journalists at UW-Madison. The spookiest of seasons is officially upon us, and Halloween is just around the corner. And if you're like us here at WRT, that means you're digging your pumpkin carving tools out of the closet. But jack-o'-lanterns can be more than just a spooky Halloween decoration. They can also provide some much-needed nourishment for Dane County's furry friends. This week on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg teaches us a useful way to recycle our old gourds. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Training Supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we're going to be talking about pumpkins and wildlife, because guess what? It's October, which means we're getting really close to the Halloween season. Uh, everybody's out at local farms uh, buying pumpkins to decorate their houses. Uh, and then we also have Thanksgiving coming up in the month of November. So uh, we do get a lot of calls and questions about pumpkins, whether our wildlife center will take pumpkins that are left over uh, or if they can purchase some for our wildlife. It's a really great question, and I think it would be helpful to kind of talk about how pumpkins can be really good for wildlife. I would say it's not necessary to uh, always donate those pumpkins to your local rehabilitator, but it is a nice option, especially for those that have more education animals, such as uh, porcupines. It's a very tasty treat for them. Um, maybe some possums who really would like to eat it as an extra snack. Uh, squirrels, definitely. You know, those that are, are rehabilitating lots of gray squirrels, I think that's a, a superfood for them. Um, but we also want to be careful that we're not collecting so many pumpkins that they will become rotten or or even toxic over time if there are excess growth of things like even E. coli, which has been known to be found in seeds if left too long or set out to dry too long, or just in general, you know, as those pieces of pumpkin get more rotten, then again, you've got those other toxic compounds and things that are breaking down that would have otherwise been nutritious uh, when it was a healthier pumpkin. So pumpkins are great for wildlife, uh, usually the flesh and the seeds. Uh, it can be eaten by a lot of different animals. I think the history of pumpkins is pretty incredible. So if you check out the Smithsonian uh, archives, they've got some really great stories about how pumpkins kind of came into existence to be a symbiotic relationship with people when we first started domesticating those, uh, so squash and pumpkin species, because I guess historically, and this is just fun for my learning here, the seeds were really dispersed, I guess, originally by some of our larger animals. So when we had mastodons roaming, uh, they would break open things like pumpkins and then the seeds would disperse, whereas our small critters like squirrels and chipmunks and things uh, weren't really eating those larger, um, they're actually a fruit, although they're more like a vegetable, they are considered a fruit because of the seeds, they really wouldn't bear through the really thick outer uh, husk of the pumpkin. So it really takes an animal that's larger or has really strong teeth and that can tolerate the bitterness of some of the wild squash species or pumpkin species that we might have. 
So over time with humans liking squash and pumpkins, domesticating them, uh, it kind of became bigger, tastier, uh, sweeter. Um, and we, of course, use pumpkins for pumpkin pie. We like to bake the seeds and eat them. But the wild critters absolutely love them, too. So if you are planning to buy some pumpkins, whether it's making, carving jack-o'-lanterns or if you're just putting them out on your steps for decoration, before they get too uh, gunky or too old, definitely put them out uh, for our wildlife critters to enjoy. And there's lots of good ways to do that. Some really great and very creative ideas online that you can search. But in general, we want to be able to give it to um, animals in a safe way. So maybe this year consider not painting your pumpkins. I know a lot of folks like to paint them various colors, but you want to make sure that it's a non-toxic paint so that if a squirrel decides it wants to chew through your pumpkin, it's not going to die from some sort of excess toxicity that otherwise wouldn't be available to it. There's also some in really interesting information online about people bleaching their pumpkins to make them last longer. We've been sharing some information from other rehabbers about this. It's not something that we really like to encourage because they can get sick from that. So instead of using bleach to make a white pumpkin, uh, use vinegar instead, which usually one part vinegar to 10 parts water works just as fine. Uh, and then that will be safer for wildlife. In general, the wildlife coming around in your yard that will enjoy eating your pumpkins include deer, squirrels, raccoons, opossums, uh, mice, rats, moles, chipmunks, and uh, birds will definitely eat the seeds. So um, you want to make sure there's no paint, there's no bleach. Uh, if you can scrape out any wax from any candles you might use, if it will be an upcoming jack-o'-lantern, you know, we don't want them to eat any toxic materials in the wax. And then it's also kind of nice to uh, make them into other feeding dishes. So if you cut open your pumpkin and kind of scrape out all of the, the excess, you know, stringy bits, you can always take that piece of a pumpkin and uh, let it dry out just a bit, you know, remove some of that pulp. Maybe you want to make the seeds for yourself. That's great. And then you can add things to it. So, you know, put a little peanut butter or suet on top or sprinkle it with some mixed bird seed. So it doesn't have to just be the pumpkin. It can kind of attract those animals to it by adding extra fun foods that are safe for those wild animals. Now, uh, we do get also a lot of questions about the, like, how pumpkins are healthy for wildlife. Uh, it's definitely a huge source of vitamin A and C, and so we see a lot of vitamin A deficiency in wildlife, so pumpkin is a great option for their food. It also has a great supply of vitamin E and iron and folate, so, you know, it's obviously good for people, too. So those are all the kind of benefits to pumpkins to wildlife. Um, now, if you're on the opposite end of the spectrum and you want to discourage wildlife from eating your pumpkins, of course, trying to put them in a place that might not be as easily accessible, that was certainly fine. But there are ways, um, there's some great information on the National Wildlife Federation's blog about trying ways to discourage animals from eating those types of vegetables or, you know, depending on uh, fruit, obviously, in the case of pumpkins and squash, you can squirt some different types of liquids on the top as long as it's still safe. So uh, for those of you that are concerned about gray squirrels eating your pot, your pumpkins and you don't want them there, um, you can try, you know, doing a spray that is naturally infused with some hot stuff. So like uh, chopped hot peppers or mustard. If you can, uh, you know, get that water to a level where it's going to be really spicy, you can then take that spray and spray the leaves or spray the pumpkins themselves. And the capsaicin and the peppers will generally, as long as it's a really hot pepper, drive off any animals that might want to try to eat it. Because if that's on the outside, they're going to think, no, this is not very tasty. 
Um, sometimes people say you can use like dish soap or molasses, hot sauces. I would just caution those because you never know again what animals can maybe ingest that and then actually become sick. So you want to stick with the more natural stuff as much as possible rather than anything that is a chemical or that definitely can cause harm to wildlife because then as rehabilitators we will see those animals come in. So uh, pumpkins are great. I think it's fun to uh, use them for decorations, just to make sure they're safe for wildlife, put them out for wildlife to eat, especially during the fall period as food availability starts to decrease. And um, certainly think about growing pumpkins in your own yard because uh, the fun thing about pumpkins and having them is that when they bloom, you are also helping the bees. So there's so many benefits of pumpkins and squash and uh, for yourself, for local wildlife. Uh, it's a fun thing to talk about during this fall season. So I hope you enjoyed this segment. And yes, pumpkin's good for wildlife. If you have any questions about an animal you might think is sick or injured or have questions about feeding wildlife, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And this has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. In 1920, the astronomy world was divided by a difficult question of cosmic proportions. How big is the universe? This week on Radio Astronomy, crew member Rourke Habegger recounts the great debate of 1920 and its lasting impacts on the scientific community. Einstein published his geometric theory of relativity in 1915. This would upend the world of physics over the next decade. However, astronomers were simultaneously struggling with another paradigm-shattering concept. How many galaxies are there? Hello, and welcome to Radio Astronomy on WORT 89.9. I'm Rourke Haveger, and today I'm going to tell you about the Great Debate. On April 26, 1920, Harlow Shapley and Heber Curtis gave 40-minute presentations during the National Academy of Sciences annual meeting. Their conflicting conclusions on what they called spiral nebulae would shape the next century of astronomy research. Their debate was well-planned in advance. In 1919, George Hale was tasked with planning a lecture series for the National Academy's 1920 meeting. Hale originally wanted to have a, the series focus on Einstein's relativity and its applications to astronomy, but his friend, Charles Abbott, recommended against this with the following statement, I pray to God that the progress of science will send relativity to some region of space beyond the fourth dimension, from whence it may never return to plague us. Retrospectively, this is hilarious. Today we get to see general relativity in action. Gravitational wave observatories like LIGO give us the chance to observe binary black hole mergers. To Abbott's dismay, general relativity did not go away. However, Abbott also pointed out that a more enlightening discussion would come from addressing a dissonance in the astronomy community. 
some astronomers claimed spiral nebulae, like Andromeda, were other galaxies. Others found this preposterous and suggested they were just collections of gas emitting diffuse light. This fueled a nearly year-long correspondence between Hale, Harlow, Shapley, and Heber Curtis. Curtis had recently published work detailing why spiral nebulae were other galaxies. Shapley was an expert in distance calculations with Cepheid variable stars and argued the Milky Way was much too large for these objects to be outside of it. The letters back and forth between Shapley and Curtis set the stage for that great debate in April of 1920. Was there just one galaxy, the Milky Way, or were there more galaxies? The answer to that question would not come until later in the 1920s. Edwin Hubble measured Cepheid variable stars from inside the Andromeda Nebula. This put the debate to rest by identifying Andromeda as its own galaxy, many light years away from us. Looking back, we might say that Curtis was right and Shapley was wrong, but that would be wrong of us. The main piece of data that Curtis and Shapley disagreed on was the size of our own galaxy. Shapley argued it could be as large as 300,000 light years in diameter. Curtis measured it to be only 20,000 light years in diameter. Our modern estimates suggest it is just over 100,000 light years in diameter. In terms of magnitude, Shapley was more accurate in his estimate. Also, he placed our sun at a radius of 60,000 light years from the center of the galaxy. Curtis placed our sun near the center of the galaxy. Once again, Shapley was more accurate. He supported this point with a reference to the Copernican Principle. The Copernican Principle is an important part of astronomy, and it's a specific example of Einstein's relativity postulates. Basically, the Copernican Principle is the assumption that we are not special observers. There is nothing unique or central to where we are in the universe. This idea was revolutionary, as Melissa brought up in, on this broadcast last month. Shapley's use of the Copernican Principle and his estimates for the Milky Way's size were more accurate. But he was coming to the wrong conclusion. Curtis came to the right conclusion that there were other galaxies than the Milky Way, but for the wrong reasons. The fundamental problem was they could not comprehend the universe being big enough to contain multiple things with a size of 300,000 light years. Of course, modern cosmological estimates put the size of the observable universe at 93 billion light years, more than enough room for tons of galaxies. Astronomy has come a long way since the Curtis-Shapley Great Debate in 1920, but the constant discussion of new observations and their implications is the same. The scientific method is just as effective now as it was then. Speaking of science, the Nobel Prize in Physics was announced today. The award was given for the study of complex systems, specifically the study of the Earth's climate. Thanks for tuning into Radio Astronomy today. I hope you have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Nate Carlin, and Nate Wegehout was out on special assignment. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. Super Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. 
And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Enrique Patio. Good night.